pandemic got us into a reflective space and made us look inward to see what we can do for the world at large. As a self-expression coach, I became a catalyst for women and started Vani, a one-on-one -on -one coaching program for women on finding their voice, to speak up, to be visible. As a storyteller, I spotted there were many ordinary people amongst us leading extraordinary lives, making a difference to the world, and they needed to be heard. Thus was born You and I with Rashmi Shetty, where amazing personal journeys with their uniqueness and individuality are showcased. A reaffirmation of the fact, open your eyes wider, the world is far more beautiful when we acknowledge the presence of both you and I. Our guest today is Dr. Neena Varma, an appreciative inquiry expert, grief and growth specialist, and leadership team and life coach. Her grief and growth practice that she began 15 years ago found great depths after the sudden demise of her elder son in 2014. She has since then devoted herself fully to counseling, coaching, and companioning for grief affirmation, life purpose clarity, resilience, and post-traumatic growth. Nina combines appreciative inquiry, meaning reconstructive grief therapy, logotherapy, positive psychology, compassion-focused therapy, poetry, writing, and arts to facilitate healing, resilience, and deep growth at an individual, family, leadership, and team level. Nina has authored two books. Watch as she shares about her recent book, Grief, Growth, Grace, a Sacred Pilgrimage, which is helping bereaved people as well as grief and growth practitioners around the globe. Nina also runs an independent library movement in the services of less privileged children. An inspirational journey nevertheless as she shares how the ups and downs have made her who she is today. Hi, Nina. Honored to have you on You and I with Rashmi Shetty. Always a pleasure talking to you, I know, and so much to learn from you. So what I'm curious about is what was little Nina like to the Dr. Nina Varma we all know today? First of all, namaste and uh, thank you so much, Rashmi. Happy to be here. Hello, hi, Adab, Sasrakal, everyone. How was little Nina like? Uh, little Nina... Uh, was secretly mischievous whenever she had an opportunity she she she, she was naughty she liked to be you know just uh, playful and left alone to to her own devices and her own mischiefs i was uh, middle of the three daughters and uh, somehow my elder sister was not born healthy she was the only surviving of the twins so she had uh, you know she she was weak and fragile from the beginning. and uh, So she needed to be looked after. And I was co-opted by my parents as the third guardian to my <laughs> uh, elder sister. So I was, um, for early parts of my life, I was also a kind of caregiver for her. Uh, and my younger sister arrived a few years later. And um, so, and... Uh, 
she kind of you know immediately from early on took me up as her um, uh, what, what should i call her third parent in a way because she was uh, the gap was about 5 years or so and my parents were both working and we both were more kind of like each other so she she somehow uh, gelled more with me than with my elder sister of course three of us were all close so um, in in a very weird way i was uh, an an elder figure to both my sisters younger as well as, as well as elder so that kind of took away some of my time being the mischievous the naughty me that i was <laughs> Uh, but whenever i got an opportunity i would i would be out on the streets and in the park in the neighborhood park or in the playground in school i was i was naughty not not in a not in a harmful way but i i liked my little mischief i was creative i was not um, i i was not i didn't have a good hand in drawing or so that was kind of very very elementary i barely managed to do a kite or an apple or a fish um but i made up little poems from as far back in time as i remember i did write poetry i did write short stories and uh, later i in my school i was roped in into the theater team and i was assisting the teacher in charge in writing screenplays and dialogues and things like that so that kind of you know creative bit and and i loved reading i used to get lost in books so so that's how little nina was she would read anything and everything except her textbooks really so how were you it's really i was until uh, class 4 uh, or 5 i think my parents had a handful of you know complaints about that my homeworks were not on time that i was my performance teachers always felt that maybe they thought that my parents were not paying enough attention because they thought that i shouldn't be i shouldn't be doing as as i was doing they thought i should be doing better so once or twice those days ptms were not so regular but yeah. once or twice whenever my parents had an occasion to visit the school teachers would complain and they'd say that maybe you're not paying full attention she is not scoring good and by so she has something in her etc etc but the thing is that i was never diligent about my work i i never liked to sit down and study so it was something that i would somehow manage just on the eve of the exam and that too because my mother was a teacher and she somehow you know then got me around to sit down for a few hours make a smart preparation and then make through the exam somehow i think class 6 onwards um, you know something changed uh, i developed a lot of interest in english and mathematics after my parents changed my school from class 6 i was in a different school mathematics and english somehow um, attracted me a lot and and that got me to develop greater uh, sitting stamina and start studying and i started to participate in lot of things things you know poetry and stories etc which i was doing before also but they did not have an expression in previous school this school somehow offered some opportunities and i started to participate in declamations debates and very often getting prizes by the time i came in class 8 my school started that that year they started uh, something called in the in the remembrance of the founder uh it was uh, the uh, it was a memorial all round uh, best student of the year shield which was a rotating shield 
you know, so if a student won it for three years in a go, that student will get it forever. But otherwise, you know, every year it rotated. So in the in its inaugural year in class eight, I was the surprise winner. And the surprise was for everybody, my parents, my class teacher, but most of all myself, I was totally, you know, I I was confused receiving the prize. What is it coming to me for? Uh, later, my English teacher explained, he said that they didn't necessarily go for the top three graders, but they looked at the overall. And of course, by then I had come in the top five somehow. And um, um, so I, all of the things, you know, put together. So I got it. And that changed. You know, it's like what in coaching you and I, we often talk about power of expectations, the power of belief that uh, that that accomplishment created some kind of a belief that yes i i can amount to something in life and that kind of changed my engagement with my own uh, self and class 9 i continued to be a kind of mediocre student uh, but i was participating much more in the activities in the co-curricular activities i was writing much more um, and class 10 somehow i managed to be uh, third place holder in the school all sections put together um, but the margins were so narrow between the first and me we were all two marks apart in class 10 boards which was ninth and 10th put together that was the last year that ninth and 10th syllabus was put together so somehow all three of our uh, us were by our school very thoughtfully and graciously treated equally because the margin was hardly anything between the three. So that was a moment of reckoning for myself. And I, I felt that now I need to pay attention to what I bring on table and get focused about it. So class 11 was different. Of course, I initially didn't like it because so little Nina has now gone to class 11. You asked about little Nina, I've taken it already. To no, class 11. If, if you're in the top three, Nina, a natural choice for children in the top um, 20 would easily be science eyes closed. Yeah. So yes. you two were one of those who moved no, into science? No, no, That's what I was about to come to, that obviously the school and my parents, they chose science for me. Uh, why I did not have a say in the matter was also because I was underage. As I told you earlier, that uh, for my eldest sister, I had been co-opted in early in for her caregiving. As a result, I was put to school earlier than my uh, age. So I was um, youngest in my class and that age uh, limit also I did not cover. So a special application had gone to CBSE to get my age condoned or something like that. So I was pretty underage and my parents and my teachers, they decided that we need to take the decision for what she will study. So then I was put in science. And I was secretly crying because I did not have my heart in it. I mean, especially biology and chemistry. I, I, I didn't know how to even stand in the lab for a few minutes because, you know, I had an absolutely uh, impossible kind of, sorry to use the word, but hate relationship with these subjects. And the physics was something that I somehow managed to uh, go through. Uh, Okay, not not very well, but not bad either. 
So uh, somehow my mother noticed, and again my English teacher in class eleven, he also noticed. They all noticed that I wasn't happy. And my mother, uh, being a teacher, she put this point across that see, she scored a high distinction in all other subjects except science. In science, she doesn't have a distinction. That means she is not perhaps cut out for science. So that logic convinced everyone, and they agreed to take me out of science. But still, there was this kind of stigma with humanities. You know, it was. Um, sorry to say, but very sadly, people used to say that the high scorers don't go to humanities. It was looked down upon, which I feel very bad about. Yeah, still is. So Only off late, I think things are changing. Yes, yes. And I wanted to study psychology and English literature. That's what my wish was. If somebody cared to ask, which everyone thought that see, she is not even fifteen, <laughs> she, she won't know. To ask her. <laughs> she won't know. So. Um, so somehow then i cried my heart before my mother and uh, my mother i thought that she's got me out of science now she will bail me out of this as well but they all thought that the next best is commerce and she she secretly agreed to me that okay you do well in english you get a distinction score in class 12 which used to be like some kind of an impossible kind of a dream and uh, then i will get you shifted to english honors and i put all my heart class 11 and 12 i started so well so well because a condition of an overall of this percentage and a distinction in english i said i was studying not for commerce i was studying commerce but not for commerce but only for that target now what happened at the end of it in class 12 i did get a distinction in english i was the only student in my school to get a distinction in english but other than that this is what i call a sweet accident of my life in uh, commerce overall i uh, was first in my entire zone and i got a 15th place in cbse's merit list ooh okay now my parents and teachers were more than convinced that i was just cut out for commerce <laughs> and my mother backed out she broke the deal <laughs> and i landed in shriram college of commerce whereas i wanted to land in lady shriram college for <laughs> english honors or psychology honors so that's how then i eventually became a management student but how how did the, you accept it neena because you know when your heart is not in it and your heart is yes. elsewhere uh how did you tell yourself that it's okay maybe they know no, better i it was no become honest was miserable i i okay fine i i got a first division marks and i got 66% which was considered fairly good um and uh, under um, peer pressure and parental pressure and everything because in shriram college everybody was doing ca also yeah. i agreed to do cwa and there also i did very well i got a rank and everything I didn't have my heart in it. I was doing it all because I was a diligent child. I was a obedient child. I didn't say no to my parents ever for anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow they thought that they had taken a right decision in their good intentions and good wisdom. And um, nobody thought that you know psychology would have some kind of a future or English would have. I would end up being a, a teacher. My father. Uh, visualized me as an IAS officer. My mother visualized me as a college lecturer. 
something like that or a big corporate honko this is what they're uh, common mutual agreed upon what did nita visualize the nita i i just i just saw myself studying psychology researching psychology or english literature either of the two or both maybe and uh, if uh, i were left to myself i would have ended up becoming only an, a researcher and a, an accommodation uh, to earn my um, livelihood uh, and write read and write read and write that's it i was a fierce introvert despite being a mischievous child i was a fierce introvert you know i i was um i always needed to retreat to myself uh, after a group activity i used to group activity used to overwhelm and tire me very much so for my world was psychology and english literature that's where i used to come back to recharge myself fine you are not allowing me to pursue these educations but i can always read up on myself so i was always reading up on myself i was member of delhi public library um and i was always you know getting more books of literature or psychology home than anything else and so that's that's what my secret heaven was that's what my uh, safe place my creative century was that's where i re- retreated and recharged myself uh so i i managed to do well in bcom honors then i uh at the time of my post graduation i discovered the subject of organizational behavior and i said wow now this is one link back i can get uh because organizational behavior you know uh, is as you know is an amalgam science of psychology anthropology management sociology and i said now this will allow me some kind of a u turn or or a side turn in the direction of psychology and it did it did um but unfortunately when i started my mphil that year delhi university did not float the organizational behavior stream and because uh, i didn't uh, like didn't give me the luxury to drop a year and wait for it to happen next year so i had to opt for management only and um, so that's how i ended up studying management and taking up management as my career started uh, for a brief bit i taught uh, in delhi university colleges but then indian oil is what i joined as in the corporate career secretly somewhere behind at my heart was like what i always envisioned myself to be so that's that's what secretly sat at my heart and at some stage after all the um, we had several between my husband and i mean after my marriage several responsibilities we needed to settle the family and uh, so many things to do so so my earning was important indian oil salary was good perquisites were good so that was very important for our responsibilities once things began to settle and my children were also no longer very tiny they were like you know six and two types and uh, they were getting very ignored and neglected so i somehow managed to convince my husband to let me take a leave for a while and be at home to look after my children i had been sitting on huge guilt so once at home what happened was obviously i became i, I very happily took to being a full time at home mother uh however that was not just the whole of it you know that also allowed me opportunity to pick my books again i started to read again an organizational behavior which had been lying buried for so many years so far that got picked up again 
and I joined ISAB's, you know, Applied Behavioral Science training program. So slowly and gradually, you know, bit by bit by bit by bit, then a year or year and a half later, I returned to register myself a PhD in organization behavior. ISAB's was happening simultaneously. When I got into appreciative inquiry, things were happening. And uh, meanwhile, um, uh, as a family, we came to an agreement between my husband and me that it's time that I quit Indian oil because my children were now looking, you know, better and healthier with me being around at home full time. So I had quit Indian oil, which was with much resistance from the company, but somehow I stuck to my conviction, which was a hard decision because we did not have any savings to us. All my income, as I told you, you know, earlier was, and now um, it was hard for us financially, very hard, but it was such a beautiful life because the only home help that I had, I disbanded her. So I was doing all the work and my little kids with their little hands, they would join in. And early on, they got all the training and life skills. You know, if I'm brooming the house, they would be dusting and they would be cleaning with me and things like that. And uh, I started to do random writing assignments from home. And I started to take coaching classes at home from class six to MPhil. Anybody was welcome and pay me whatever you like. Just make sure it is not so ridiculously low that next day I kind of don't meet you with my happy energy. <laughs> so just <laughs> left it to people to decide what they wanted to pay, but would also give my hints like it is too low. <laughs> so, uh, so that was that was fun life because I was at home, I was studying, reading up at my free will. I was looking after my children very well. And uh, we were having great fun. My husband had tough assignments, so he was very often not at home. Um, relatives would come, go visitors. So I was able to look after everyone nicely, happily. And uh, so those five, six years were very beautiful. Then 2004, I came back to work after my PhD, about a year and a half after my PhD was over. And and my children were also now by now you know kind of more self-reliant and bit by bit i had opportunities to join full-time in corporate roles um uh, but i knew that somehow that i wanted to retain my autonomy creative autonomy professional autonomy so initially it was difficult to to work um in what people would call freelance mode um to be able to balance between your autonomy and also manage your professional and you know commercial concerns uh, you know uh, you would understand it's it's not that easy you know it seems easy from outside but it's always um a kind of little tricky journey to do so so did that um and uh, I think I did that well uh, because I had made a promise to myself when I came to consulting that never, never I would do it by ignoring my family or my children. And I think that part of the promise to myself, I fulfilled well. Um, there were hiccups in between. There were times when the clients won't understand and push their need. 
there were times some clients kind of called me very unprofessional and withdrew the accounts and uh, i never blamed anybody i think they were right in doing what they did um but somehow politely and quietly i held on to my promise to myself and uh, sometimes the money became a problem uh, it wasn't like as much as i needed to bring home i wasn't earning as much as uh, was my commitment to my family budget uh, but then overall it was a nice journey i think meena um, you are somebody who is famous and synonymous with appreciative inquiry because the moment anybody mentions that term the first name that comes to almost everyone is dr meena varma so who introduced you you very casually mentioned it but who introduced you to it and how did you delve so deep into it that you even wrote a book on it thank you so much for uh, talking about appreciative inquiry because that's almost my life i discovered it while doing my course work for phd so because uh, my phd was in organizational behavior and development so i was uh, supposed to do quite a bit of course work and in the uh, course of that course work i discovered this methodology and initially i studied it just like you know any other thing in my course work and did the required work but somewhere in my uh, you know subconscious it lingered it stayed and it lingered and um, you know, two things particular three things particularly just stayed with me one was appreciative inquiry one was jungian depth psychology and the third was logotherapy these three things came very strongly to me i was exposed to so many other methodologies i did very well by the grace of god in transactional analysis in nlp in firo b i did very well um, but these were the things which kind of lingered with me so appreciative inquiry uh, began my journey began as self study i remember the very first book that i could buy was when my husband in 2005 came on a study tour to us and so that's when he got me my first book in appreciative inquiry and that was like you know for me such a prized position you know i used to joke to my husband that uh, till then my marriage was 14 years and he had never got me a gift never and i said you getting me this book is forgiven all of that <laughs> so appreciative inquiry book so um that became my prized possession and i can tell you which book it was it was jane otkins change at the speed of imagination so this is one of a very very solid books on appreciative inquiry so before that i had already read two three books i had borrowed them from mdi library through an acquaintance i was also teaching few taking few guest lectures there so um and this with this book i somehow felt that i do have a place here in this world and i started to devote myself more to it Uh, in 2003 uh, towards the closure of my phd i had already experimented with appreciative inquiry as a methodology in an assignment that i was required to do and it had done well but at that level you know it was still like a methodology for me it was like a technique for me it was that i by the grace of god i did well with but it had not yet become uh, opened up to myself as a philosophy of life you know a way of life uh, 
So that started to happen after 2005 when I got this book and I started to put more and more into it. Still, the turning point came in 2006. Uh, when what happened was that my son, uh, who on his very newly acquired uh, cycle bike, he used to go out every day and every day he would return injured, bruised. And um, not that he was not biking properly, but he used to just get nervous on the traffic or things like that and fall here and there. So every day, you know, the, the anxious me, the anxious mom used to every evening would tell him that don't go on the right, stay on the left, don't, don't go on the crowded street, don't bike on the main road, don't, 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 so many don'ts. And... Uh, and suddenly, my eldest son, one day, he said, he just told him, go bike in the park and have fun. And lo and behold, that day, the boy didn't return home with any bruise. He was all right. And he was smiling. And he said, bhai, park was fun. I will now go and bike in the park only. And something shifted but I didn't pay much attention to it in that particular moment you know as we remain busy with everyday stuff we move from thing to thing so but but this thing didn't leave without registering itself in my mind that what shifted what shifted and then thereafter you know um, I started to notice pay attention to the language that my elder son would use his language was always what in coaching you and I, we call the approach goals, the affirmative language. His language rarely, if ever, had the word don't or not. And his language seemed to work. He wasn't ever a big talker, very frugal talker and um, economical, but also extremely elegant with his communication. Uh, but his language worked, you know, and I started to pay notice to his language and when I started to pay attention to his language, I realized that the first classic principle of appreciative inquiry is what he was embodying. That principle is words create words. It is coming from constructionist school of thought, which says that, you know, reality as we know is co-created in the moment and there are multiple realities. And the language in the way, you know, we relate, human relationship is a central human process and language and communication in that has a big role to play. And he became actually, in a way, my first teacher of appreciative inquiry. Oh my God, this is and, so beautiful. <laughs> and I've been, you know, kind of, of course, with, with this, I was slowly getting deeper into it. Then the next principle, simultaneity is, in, uh, you know, the principle, which is inquiry is intervention. Questions are faithful. So, you know, in his conversation with my younger one, he would, so when the younger one would, uh, younger one would say with the summer assignments that should I do this or should I do that? The elder one would say, what would you enjoy the most? You know, simple questions. And I started to notice how he was, you know, communicating, what questions. For him, answers were not that important. Questions were. And questions, his questions were simple and affirmative and beautiful. Very simple. So um, this slowly was taking me deeper into appreciative inquiry. In 2008, I created my first model 
which was combining appreciative inquiry principles using the principles to work with Jungian shadow experience. And I created a four aspect model, four phase model called MARG, M-A-R-G, MARG, uh, where M is for making the dark um, visible, A is for appreciating the generative intent, um, the positive intent of the dark, R is for reframing that, reframing the reality, and G is for generating a new reality. So that four-step model, um, and then I started to work with it in my coaching, leadership coaching, team coaching, even OD assignment. And it seemed to work. The assignment after assignment, you know, feedback was good. I was applying it on myself. 2009, I had come down with um, an illness, a drug had reacted and it triggered an autoimmune condition. It was bad. Um, and uh, somehow with that, you know, uh, my son only one day suggested, you know, he said, Mama, if this problem has happened to you, it must be doing something good also to you. And I realized that in one stroke, in one statement, he has uh, narrated both M, which is making the dark visible, acknowledging it, that it has happened, and A, appreciating the good message that it brings. And I started to notice my bad health habits, the lack of exercise that I had in my life. Um, I was mostly skipping my breakfast morning meals, which was not good. So, so many bad health habits came before me. And so while, so, so this started to become more than a leadership coaching or team coaching or OD assignment technique for me, it became an embodied thing for me and something that I started to work with. And that became my first ticket to appreciative entry into appreciative inquiry world because in 2009, uh, in the World Appreciative Inquiry Conference, which came closer home to us in Nepal, which is where I could afford to go before I could never afford to go, uh, that's where I presented my uh, this um, model. And somehow I got an opportunity. David came to know about it, David Kuberaita, and he gave me an opportunity to uh, tell him about it. Uh, in just five ten minutes and I don't know what I blabbered in those five ten minutes but it somehow clicked and next thing that I know a month later David and Ron uh, very graciously they sent me uh, a full free scholarship invite to pursue the appreciative inquiry certificate program at Case Western Reserve so that is where my formal education AI began in 2010 Wow. And your son initiated you into this. My son. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I would say my son, uh, my son demonstrated uh, the magic of it to me. Initiation had happened uh, while doing my PhD coursework. But what it really is at its deeper sense, that appreciative inquiry, what I now hold so strongly, is a methodology later. First, it's a philosophy of life. First, you be AI, then you do AI. That's what I maintain now. That being AI comes before doing AI. So, so that my son demonstrated to me, and later my younger son also. Both my younger son has it. Uh, I think intuitively he's picked up uh, appreciative inquiry. He's also presented at World Appreciative Inquiry Conference in 2015. He spoke on the topic transcending grief, deep appreciation way. And his session attracted more participation than three of my other ses sessions put together. 
in the same conference. How how old was he in 2015? He was not even 19 yet, but our loss had already happened. And he got exposed to appreciative inquiry when one of, uh, when he was in class 11, once he had a three days off from school and um, one of my appreciative inquiry workshops in Delhi. And it was that day suddenly a sudden storm had happened in the middle of the winter. And it was like raining very badly. The weather was really bad and I had stuff to carry. And obviously in workshop, you're wearing sari and all that. So he was home. So I requested him to come with me to just kind of help me with stuff, you know, just mm-hmm. a big lo- bad load of your craft material and your post material, things like that you have. And he came with me and because the weather was bad, he just stayed there the whole day. And he stayed and though he was handling with the logistics, helping with the logistics only. But, you know, he just, in sitting in a corner of the hall, I think he did pay attention. And uh, then a little later, then we had held a half-day uh, preview with Ron Fry I had held in Delhi. He was passing by Delhi, so I requested him to be available and two hours of, you know, free to attend people came from all over the country to attend that uh, that day also because it was on no budget I had no money so once again Pratyush was requested my youngest son was requested to please handle the registration <laughs> counter <laughs> so he got exposed to to that and then obviously when you are hearing your mother talk on phone uh, in a small house where dining table is your home office <laughs> Yeah, you know how it happens at home True. so so somehow I think appreciative inquiry was floating in the environment and uh, the principles became alive for him in the aftermath of our loss when this couple of months before he had gone to down south to Velour to start his undergraduation uh, 2200 kilometers away from home and then the tragedy happens and then then somewhere I think uh, that you know the poetic principle that what you choose in life matters, the power of choice. So somewhere he chose, he, though I was visiting him very regularly and I was myself totally disheveled by my grief. Um, what I noticed was that he somehow quietly chose to imbibe his brother's values, life values and life beliefs and start living by them apart from his own values and beliefs. He just so so he chose to create a remembrance within himself rather than get sucked up in the grief outside. Yes. So so in that I think uh, appreciative inquiry also played a tiny role. Yes. And later uh, I was on the board and I was to go for the 2015 conference and I said I will not come because I was not in a condition. This boy quietly he didn't let me know. He sent a proposal. And his proposal got, and he made a declaration that my mother's on the board. So if there's a conflict of interest, please feel free to uh, reject my proposal. So he received a response that no, she's uh, evaluating proposals from a different territory. So yours will be sent to a different territory and uh, there's no conflict of interest. And once his proposal got accepted, that's when he asked me, he said, now for my sake and for Bhai's sake, because we had all uh, we were planning to go together. So you will come. And uh, 
And I was just in tears. I, I, I don't think I paid attention to what he spoke much, as much as the fact that he was up on the stage talking of how uh, he chose to uh, accept his grief, not fight with it, affirm it, mm. and yet find a way to transcend it. Um, I, I, I was in tears. I think people heard his content. I didn't hear his content until I heard a recording, a tiny recording somebody had made on their camera later. So things, I think when your methodologies, this is what I have come to understand that when your methodologies, you start to embody them at a deeper level, when they become you or, and you become them, uh, the effect starts to float in your environment. You know, for example, Anybody can talk of voice modulation, voice training, but the way you talk of it, Rashmi, you know, voice being an integral part of the person that you are and uh, voice not just being a physical thing, but a complete, you know, you, how you have taken the, the aspect of voice at the level of, you know, how it is, it philosophizes the entire personality dynamic of the person. So, and then you don't have to make an effort for others in your environment to learn it from you. You know, your, your vibes are floating in your environment and those vibes, they get picked up for anyone who cares to pay attention. So that's the magic of embodied work. And you are doing it like, you know, you inspire me so much the way you're doing it. Thank you, Nina. That's so sweet of you. Uh, you know, Nina, I've hugely admired you ever since we started our coaching journey together for the way you bring in appreciative inquiry. But what surprised me is in one of the conversations when you mentioned that uh, there are many other aspects of you as a coach which people have missed out. And uh, so if Nina is to be described by Nina, what is it that Nina wants the world to know? Uh, um... Just take me as a simple, simple human being. Um, that's that's how I would actually love it. That um, professional tags for me are something that okay, they they are a matter of accomplishment. They are a matter of gratitude. I I do feel happy um, when the professional uh, accomplishments happen. Uh, that said, somehow I don't have a sense of attachment with them. As a coach, I began coaching in 2005. And my first coaching assignment was team coaching. Can you believe? At that point in time, people had not so much heard of team coaching. I was doing team coaching and systemic coaching before people started to do individual coaching. So uh, I got into coach training only because I could see it coming that very soon people will be asking for ICF accreditation. So it was for the sake of accreditation that I got into coach training. And then, of course, I chose my coach training platform thoughtfully. Um, as a coach, I would say that my work is in the zone of coaching for transcendence and meaning. You know, so it's like I so value breakthrough coaching. I so value solution coaching. I so value what is what goes by the name coaching for transformation or transformational coaching. Having said that, I personally feel that coaching and, and I do quite a bit of counseling and therapy also. 
I somehow feel that uh, the purpose of these is uh, the, the coach's role or the counselor's role is to just be um, a medium of reconnection of the person with their own deepest wisdom. And uh, in that we use methods, we use techniques, we use tools, what my grief psychology mentor, Dr. Robert Niemeyer calls procedures. But if you know, um, I've, I've diverged from your question, um, but I will quickly just tell this, maybe some coaches who are listening to this, they might appreciate this. Uh, he has a 3P model, very interesting 3P model where procedures on the tip of the iceberg, the pyramid. And uh, then is the process, and which is what we become aware of when we stay rooted in the here and now of the coaching space. We notice the process, the underlying process that's unfolding. However, he says that the real crux of the matter is the presence. So he says procedure and process are very essential to this helping profession. But without presence, they're just manipulation or utilization of the technique. And that's what I stick to. I feel that the purpose of coaching or counseling or any helping uh, service is to help the client to be a medium, whether you facilitate, you help, you support, you do whatever, to be a medium for the client to reconnect with their own presence. So we focus a lot on coaches' presence. I say that can we can we also focus as much or maybe more on coaches' presence in their own process? So so in in one sentence, who's Nina? Nina is um, a simple human being uh, who, on a, in a professional uh, plane, uh, in, in, in a personal life, she likes to do tens of things. The list is very long, um, but in a, a professional space, Nina is. At the moment, she, she brings a history of organization change and development expertise, um, but at the moment is fully focused in, in the grief and growth specialist work. And as a coach, she uh, focuses on life purpose, resilience, post-traumatic growth, and um, meaningful transitions in life. And of course, therapeutic uh, writing and expressive arts as in essential part poetry therapy they are essential part of my work so this is who i am as a professional i think you can't possibly describe you in one line nina you've done so much of work over the years but now what i'm going to pick from what you spoke about is grief and growth which you're currently on and that amazing book that has got such rave reviews what is it that Nina put into that book? In 2016, I had published my grief memoir. So that was uh, my own story. But then my story is evolving story. And so that story was up till the point when it was published. And uh, that was a story that had spoken uh, to many people uh, on a grief journey, but most to the bereaved parents. Even more so to bereaved mothers, I received mails from all over the world. The book was not a commercial success. That was self-published. That was to be published through a traditional publisher. But um, there were few creative things that they wanted me to do to make it more market-friendly, which I was not willing to because I, I, I didn't want to fiddle with the content as it had come out of me. So 
so so that was self published and uh, but then uh, thereafter as i was getting deeper into my grief training and uh, my grief practice was also growing more than my grief practice i have done a lot of volunteering uh in the social communal violence space the victims of the social communal violence uh many bereaved people many people who are left with trauma because of the injuries that they have sustained um and things like that so grief and trauma counseling a lot of that is in the volunteering space so many people had been asking for a self help kind of a thing which uh, which could become their coach and counselor in times when either they could not afford or um uh, they just wanted to be by themselves but with a little quiet help you know so this had been going on then in 2019 appreciative inquiry practitioner invited me to lead edit an issue on the theme grief and growth they said grief i suggested grief and growth and they liked the idea so that issue uh, i and my grief mentor dr robert ni mayer we co-edited and that came out and we really worked very deeply on that we we picked and commissioned articles three four articles were not up to the mark but some were really fabulous um that came out in the month of may 2020 the time when pandemic had exploded on our head the reviews that it got the response that it got because it was so timely so timely that immediately i started to get calls from some established publishers to do a book in that genre where combining grief and growth because many books focused on post traumatic growth many books focused on grief alone uh, books which were combining grief and grace were more in the memoir category but there wasn't any uh, book which was uh, a professional reference book also a self help book which would Uh, address both the themes together and uh, so meanwhile uh, few, uh, 3 4 months before that i had sent my memoir to my publisher rupa publications because i wanted to republish it as a mainstream thing as a self published thing it was not gaining much traction so so during when the pandemic started and when my that issue was just about to come out that journal issue uh i heard from them and they said we wish that we had published it in the first place you know this is such a beautiful book but we won't uh republish it as it is because it's already there um but we would like you to do this book for us on grief initially i was kind of you know i was confused because you know on one side is an established big publisher like rotledge who has a huge shelf on death bereavement etc and there's a certain um, uh, reputation attached to their name stature attached to their name in the death and bereavement segment and the upset i was wondering why would rupa be interested they're a popular uh, you know trade book publisher um but i had a deep personal conversation with md and md himself explained to me what was his motivation in this theme and it was so touching a conversation i don't want to share the details here um but it was a very touching and moving conversation and that kind of convinced me that he has his heart in place as far as this theme is concerned which is a highly unpopular theme and he knew he said i know that it may not become a commercial success that's okay i'm i'm getting into this knowing fully well it may not become a commercial success 
And so, so that's how that was quite an encouragement. I spoke to my mentor and my mentor also encouraged me to go for a self-help. Because he said there are so many such heavy duty, you know, professional books, but there are very few uh, in a genre where, you know, everybody know, needs to have a grief companion, but very few people can either a, give themselves permission to ask for professional help for grief or people don't understand, their families would not understand that they need help or, or they may not even understand that they need themselves, themselves need help or they may not be able to afford it. So Nina, write a book that can become a grief companion to somebody. So I was initially nervous because I was used to doing only professional writing. I had never done self-help conversational style. So it took me a while to pick up the pen and start writing because conversational was not my, uh, you know, comfort zone. Um, but eventually when I decided to then, I, I decided that each chapter will open with a real story. Names changed, identities changed, uh, only tiny parts of the whole story is shared. But uh, I said, perhaps, you know, stories make their way to the hearts. And so let each chapter open with stories. And, the, and through this book, I introduced my model, six phase model uh, called growth, uh, which starts with grief and uh, goes to the deep, meaningful transformation phase. So um, all six phases are uh, sovereign. They are not sequentially bound to each other. You can take them up in sequential order you, or you can take any one or two of them and not all of them, you know, whichever calls out to a person. So this book, then Grief and Growth, uh, that's how the idea came into it. I have put my own heart into it. But more than that, I have made sure that um, when I wrote, I, I knew my mandate. My mandate is not to share my story. My mandate is to offer you a grief companion, which is grounded in science, which is grounded in research, which is evidence-based. However, it is a relatable, you know, conversational companion for you. There's no jargonry in this. The points have been explained through stories. Points are there, concepts are there, but they're explained through stories. They're tiny exercises, reflective exercises, art-based exercises. Uh, and each chapter ends with a poetic affirmation where I begin with a tiny affirmation and then I give you a prompt to write your own poetic affirmation. So I've tried to make it something that you would like to pick up maybe at any page, not necessarily in order. Pick up at any page and um, I've tried to make it like that maybe at each page, something will speak to your heart, even if just a word. And uh, while writing this book, then between me and the senior commissioning editor who was handling this project at the publisher, it came up... Um, um, he just loved the, the fact that I was going to write a chapter on forgiveness. Nobody talks of forgiveness in the context of grief. And he said, Nina, why don't you create a separate part for it? And that's how the third part, grace, came up. So grace, the third part is about, you know, that existential level of engagement with your grief, where forgiveness is an important part. Gratitude, reverence for life, compassion. And saying yes to life, no matter what, no matter how. Um, that's what came up. And the book ends with a prayer that I've written, an existential prayer. Thank you so much. This is, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful and powerful. 
I loved it the moment I saw the title itself and uh, the nice mandala art. Do you have the book with you? <laughs> Maybe you can yes, see it. Yes, here it is. Uh, yeah. uh, this mandala is, by the way, also my conceptualization because uh, mandala is the metaphor of the model, the growth model. The yeah. growth model uh, is, uh, is uh, rooted in mandala con uh, consciousness and it is made like a mandala, the model. Mm -hmm. The six phases, they appear like different parts of the mandala consciousness. Okay, okay. It's beautiful, Lina. Uh, Pratyush, you uh, shared how powerfully had been part of that conference. Utkarsh, in fact, demonstrated what uh, appreciative inquiry is all about. So how does Utkarsh remain with you? Utkarsh remains with me in every which way, every step of the way, every step of the way. Uh, Utkarsh, from a very early childhood, when he was a tiny baby, three years and five months is when he first revealed to us his Sufi side. We had some guests at home and their children wanted, some relatives had come over and their children wanted Chinese food and exotic Chinese food. So my, we lived in a place which was like far away from the nearest market. My husband took them all to so three of those kids and my own son. He took them all to the nearest market and they were coming back home and at traffic signal suddenly the nephews they started to scream that uncle see what Utkarsh has done and what he had done was that the big packet that they were bringing back home of the leftover the big exotic Chinese food which had taken away our entire month's salary this boy just gave to a homeless family it was early winter in Delhi December had just started. And my husband was obviously very upset and coming back home, he was very upset and he told me. And next day, relatives were there after they left a um, couple of days later. Then I asked him, why did you give the food? So Papa said that he could have given money. He said, but they, people can't eat money, Mama. It just, you know, this statement shook me. Coming from a three years and five months and one week old child, but mama, people can't eat money. People eat food. It should. And uh, so then I said, then Papa said, why did you give this food to them? Mama, food is food. You know, for him it was not like, you know, this, this exotic Chinese food, which has come for a cost, which is what we don't ever buy for ourselves, but we had to for the relatives. Things like that. So, and slowly and gradually, I started to see his that he would share away his stuff just like that. A year later, um, when my youngest son was already born, he was three, four months. First time ever, I had taken him to market for something to buy something for him. And we were returning and we were walking to the parking. By then, we had a second hand tiny car. And we were walking to the parking and I suddenly realized that my shawl was missing. And I thought that maybe I've dropped it somewhere. I was looking for my shawl and then I noticed that my son Utkarsh's jacket was also missing. And I was like, Zab, what happened? How can two things suddenly go missing like that? And my, uh, I asked him, where's your jacket? He didn't utter a word. He just pointed his finger in a direction and I could see that 
there were some construction workers who were making their meals, evening meals at the construction site at the end of the day. And he had given away my shawl and his jacket both to them. And he was quietly walking to the car. Now, these are two tiny examples I can give to you. In no time, it became clear to us that this boy is, you know, we, we use it as a cliche that so-and-so is different, but the cliche was not just a cliche in his case. He was truly different, truly different. Uh, he gave away everything, nothing with it. He held back with attachment. His poetry, he didn't held back with attachment. Anybody wanted a poetry to recite in their school assembly, Utkash would write a poetry for them and would let them even claim the credit that they are the one who's com composed. He would make clay models for people, give them away just like that. Uh, he would make notes for others. At eight years and four months, he, he became a community educator. He started to volunteer as an educator for an afternoon school uh, underprivileged girl child coming from the nearby slum areas which were close to his school school had started an afternoon school he started he he was the only child who was volunteered as an educator there apart from some parents and teachers in the afternoon school at the same time at the same time he started a weekend pavement library for another uh, you know slum area which was closer to our home so every weekend saturday and sunday irrespective of the weather. My job was to drop him at around 11. Kids used to wait for him, a mat from home and uh, two bag loads, his school bag and uh, younger brother's school bag, two bag loads of books from home and his water bottle and his tiffin. And uh, those kids, they used to wait for him and they would keep uh, a patch of the pavement clean and he would just put his mat there. Soon he roped me into his this thing. And whatever be the weather, this weekend library never stopped for as many years as we were there in Noida. Then the endeavor moved to Chandigarh when we moved there. And in Chandigarh, he added one more endeavor to that, which is that he started to, he joined a group uh, where he was the youngest kid. All others were, you know, kind of school or college going or even older um, boys. They used to go from signal to signal to sensitize the homeless kids on the signal uh, to um, not fall to substance abuse. So there's so many stories to him. Uh, you said, in what way does he stay with me? He stays with me in every which way. In physical form, uh, it is his library endeavor that we as a family have taken forward. So we have been setting up community libraries. Uh, so for nine static libraries and one mobile library, and we've contributed to several other community libraries being run by other people. Uh, so all this is a self-funded, quiet endeavor of the family that we do. Uh, last year, in 2020, we launched an endowment project at his university in his remembrance, which has two parts. In 2020, the, the library started. So it is a tiny library within the university library, which is called Utkarsh Reading Alcove and which is where all the non-academic, you name the subject and it is there. The books are there and every year out of the endowment, a certain number will get added. And this year, Utkarsh Fellowship is starting 2022, the other endowment project. So these are the physical forms, the manifest forms in which he stays. His philosophy is being carried on by his university.
um, through the endowment projects. And we hope to start an endowment project soon in his school as well. Um, but I would say, you know, I've, I've never uh, shied away from saying that I'm one person who's been parented by her children. Her children are the biggest influence on me. So, so Utkarsh, uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of case, you can call it a reverse legacy case, but Utkarsh has left me with his legacy. And his legacy has impacted me in every which way. And um, if I can, if I can inculcate and live in my behavior, even one percent of what Kirsch is and stood for, I think I would, I would justify being his mother. You are uh, Nina for sure. And uh, you know, the pandemic was one place where we understood how fickle life is. We all know it, but I think for most of us, the fickleness of life was evident. So as someone who just had him one day and did not have him the next, what would you tell people as part of uh, the grief that they are going through at losing someone very dear to them, if there are like, one or two things that they should always remember to hold themselves together, what would they be, Nina? I think life's transience and impermanence, we kind of get to acknowledge and recognize perhaps only when it hits us hard, directly and personally. Uh, it's only in the immediacy of the experience, your own personal shock that you come face to face with life's transience. Um, but that is one truth I would encourage people to somehow keep at the front of their mind and at the front of their heart. And if life's transience and life's impermanence is perhaps the only eternal truth, um, you know, like Guru Rabindranath goes, a quotation I don't recall verbatim, but he says that uh, um, uh, life is in the raising of the foot as much as it is in the putting down of the foot. So, so for me. Life, death is not the opposite of life. For me, death is part of life, like birth is. Uh, so to acknowledge that life is transient, to know that impermanence is perhaps the only eternal truth. And if, if, if impermanence is the only eternal truth, if anything could be taken away, your most precious thing, your, both my children are the apple of my eyes, but even Pratish knows that somehow Utkarsh is my soul, you know. So my most precious thing was taken away from me like this in a zap. Until date, we don't understand why he had this massive cardiac arrest at that unlikely age. It was so sudden, like a car, deck of cards, he collapsed. Then uh, with impermanence and transience being the eternal truth of life, there's only one thing we could remember that the moment on hand is the only moment you have. And if this is the only moment you have, uh, your only mandate in life perhaps is to fill it with love and meaning. You will accomplish professionally. You will make a mark on professional planes. You would make a mark on social skies. People would know you. People would applaud for you. People would follow your work. People, you, you would have amazing uh, followerships on LinkedIn and social media and Facebook and things like that. Uh, at the end of the day, when you're sleeping, if you're sleeping with one regret that I hurt 
so-and-so in such a such way and I'm sleeping with this regret, I don't think that would be a nice sleep to have. So just, just, just make sure that every moment is filled with love and meaning, no matter how hard it is. Because more moments in life will be hard than easier. And life is supposed to keep us in the growth pain zone. Life is not supposed to keep us in the comfort zone. And if we are in the growth pain zone, more, more trials, more tribulations, more trauma will happen than we can imagine. But in the midst of this turbulence, uh, transformation is the most beautiful invitation. That's the most beautiful opportunity. Um, where there's grief, growth is sitting alongside. Where there is lament and loss, love is sitting alongside. Where there is a cry, celebration is sitting alongside. Can you please notice them both and embrace them both together in the same frame? And, uh, and that is it. That is it. Um, pandemic has... Um, uh, pandemic is an opportunity where, you know, uh, we all thought that we will come out of it stronger and we have, we have, we have all come out of it stronger. Uh, my humble submission is to just say that um, perhaps pandemic had a bigger invitation. Perhaps the in invitation was to come out of it humbler, warmer and wiser. Humbler, warmer and wiser. You said it all. Do you still have three life lessons, Nina, for us? I think the one life lesson that I would say is that um, uh, very often in life we are caught in dilemmas and they are existential dilemmas, you know, to be or not to be the, is the question. And, um, and I think there are no simple straight answers ever to that. There are no simple straight answers ever to that. For me, uh, a trick that I learned over years and that has worked always is one hand on my heart and one on my head. And the moment I feel peace, answer lies in that moment. So wherever my head and heart are in sync, answer emerges from that. Um, it's, it's cliche to say follow your heart, but it's not always possible to follow our heart as it is because there are practical you know, implications and complications involved which head will point us to. But there are always pockets in between where head and heart do come in agreement. Uh, it's like we miss them, but not because we can't notice them, but because we are so rushed up in life that we don't have time to wait patiently and watch what is coming up. Watch for it. So I would say that when in predicament is, is all the more a reason for us to, to not rush ourselves up to wait so like when in a hurry go slow that's my one life mantra when in a hurry go slow and with go slow i would say another life mantra that i've always lived by is that um, simple small and slow works um, i've never set for myself never in my life whether you believe it or not never in my entire life for 54 years and now almost nine months nine nine and a half months I have never in my life set for me ambitions which were grand or big. I have always looked for the next small step ahead. What in this moment my heart and my mind are asking for and what is the next step to that? So 
of course i do not deny the value of planning big but i would say that your your deepest truths emerge in the moment so keep it simple in that moment simple small and slow third lesson say yes to life no matter what inspirational generous and just being there to share so much of who you authentically are god bless you stay blessed and honored to have hosted you on you and i with rashmi shetty what an inspiring life what an inspiring simple authentic way of just being vulnerably you and telling us why you're so special god bless you and just continue to inspire thank you so much rashmi it was a, it was it was truly a very precious opportunity and uh, i don't think i would like to uh, ornament it with words my thank you is truly deeply heartfelt a warm gratitude and all the best wishes and blessings for your noble endeavor uh, may more and more life lives get an opportunity to be showcased through your endeavor and uh, you continue to be the torch bearer of light and meaning and growth and transformation thank you so much thank you neela With that we come to the end of this weekly quest of you and I with Rashmi Shetty. Do let us know if you know people who make the world beautiful. Write in to rashmi.thethirdeye@gmail.com. That is r a s h m i . t h e t h i r d e y e @gmail.com. Come Let's explore this amazing world together both you and I